The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. once again, that God would be kind once again to us in opening his word to us with his spirit. Father God, we pray that today as we come before you, that you would give us the ability to understand your word, that as we look into this story, this historical event, that we would not just think of it as a fun fairy tale for Lord, it is not that at all. Lord, we thank you that you have given us recordings of true events like these so that we might learn of you. Lord, I thank you that just as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these things were written down for our benefit, that we who have come upon the end of the ages, we who are living now in the age of the church, in the new covenant, that we can look at what was happening under the old covenant and see what you have done for us even more clearly. God, we pray that today as we look into the lives of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, that you would help us to grow, that you would cause us to be sanctified just as you were sanctifying them in this chapter. Help us to be changed, God. We cannot do this work on our own. We cannot do this work quickly. Lord, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would be refining us, that you would be changing us, that this word would be actively Uh, removing things from our lives that should not be there and replacing them with delight in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. You'll have to pardon me. This morning I woke up a little bit under the weather, so if I'm beginning to lose my voice, I apologize. I'll do my very best, but please pray for me even as you hear the word this morning. This morning, as you know, we are looking at the story that was read to you so well by Robert Gonzalez. Be sure that your sin will find you out, it says in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling, it says in Proverbs twenty-six twenty-seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap, Galatians 6, 7. One of the most obvious realities in the world is that sin has consequences, You don't have to be a genius to realize that sin has consequences. We fully expect that there will be a negative response when somebody lies or they cheat or they steal or otherwise operate in an immoral, sinful manner. Even children understand the concept of cause and effect. If I touch something hot that I've been told not to touch, it will burn my fingers. Children learn this at a very young age. They know if I jump off of something, eventually I'm going to land somewhere. But when we are tempted to sin and it comes to us, it's in our lap, all of a sudden we become oblivious to the fact that sin has consequences. All of a sudden, we think that we are somehow unique or special or the rules don't apply to us. That's what we've been seeing in the life of Jacob. He's lied to his father. He has pretended to be his brother in order to steal the blessing. Jacob stood before his father in his father's own tent. 
and his father's eyes are blinded from old age, and he is basically sitting there in darkness, and Jacob lies to his face. Isaac was tricked, and the blessing that Isaac intended to bestow on the older brother was instead given to the younger. Then when Jacob worked for seven years to marry Rachel, Leah is the one who boldly entered into Jacob's tent. And she pretended to be her sibling. And in the darkness, she fooled Jacob. And in the morning, when Jacob realized that the brides had been switched, he went and he approached Laban. Laban, of course, you'll remember from last week, explained to him, it was not customary for the younger to be married first. The custom was that the older would be married first. So why didn't Jacob freak out at this moment? Why didn't he lash out at him? Why didn't it come to blows immediately? Why didn't he declare, give me my rights? We made a deal. I believe it's because Jacob realized in that moment what God was doing. I think he understood that he had scoffed at the rights of the older sibling when it came to his own brother, and he had done the very thing, he had done everything to usurp the natural order of culture by bartering for Esau's blessing and by stealing for his birthright and stealing his blessing. But now, he's the one who's been tricked into honoring the firstborn. He has now been forced by the nature of a liar to honor the firstborn. Last week, we saw the beginning of God's discipline in the life of Jacob. This man who was named deceiver, who was named liar, usurper, he is going to experience a series of trials over the course of 20 years that will result in him being able to say to his uncle Laban after 20 years, my honesty speaks for me in chapter 30, 33. Is this even the same man? How does he go from being deceiver to saying, my honesty will speak for me. Today's chapter will show us part of that. How did this deceiver change? It was by the sanctifying hand of God. The Bible does not teach karma. Karma is not real. Although it is true that a man will reap what he sows, it's also true that this is not only a simple cause and effect mechanism in the universe. God is the one working in Jacob to conform him into the image of his son. Every single circumstance, including the sinful motives of Laban and Leah and Rachel, all of these are being woven together for the welfare of, of people like Jacob and even for Leah, and even for Rachel, because they are under God's covenant. God is disciplining Jacob. Last week, Jacob uh, Heifert mentioned in his sermon, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, I took my kids to the park just down the street from my house, while we're there, there were a few kids on the playground. They were a little older than my kids. And they were just being a little rough with one another, and they were being a little rude and crude and unkind to one another. And they were saying words that I didn't want my children to hear. So do you know what I did not do? I did not discipline those children. Why not? Because they're not my children. I have absolutely no business disciplining them. I did approach them and I asked them kindly to stop using those words around my kids. But I did not discipline them because that was not my place. They're not my children. But God is disciplining Jacob and his family because he loves them. 
And because they are his children, he is lovingly correcting them by working circumstances together in such a way that it causes them to see their desperate need of God. Today, the focus is not primarily on Jacob, although the flow of the text does speak to him on some level. Today, we are mainly going to see the way that God is working in the lives of his wives, Leah and Rachel. In order to get the family dynamic straight in our minds right up front, I want you to notice a few quick things about these two women. First, notice what it says about them in Genesis 29:17-18. It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, it's very difficult to translate or even really get a firm grasp on the meaning of the phrase that Leah's eyes were weak. In fact, I've read a lot about this in the past few weeks, and it seems like nobody really agrees. Some of the best options, I think, that are out there are that this means that she had lazy eyes, or it means that she was cross-eyed, or some scholars think that this is like an idiomatic term. We use the phrase, a person is easy on the eyes. This is the opposite of that phrase, and that's probably the most likely because the way she is contrasted with her sister, who is known to be beautiful in appearance. Although the exact meaning of the phrase isn't clear to us, the general meaning surely is. She's not nearly as attractive as her younger sister. One commentator actually refers to poor Leah as being homely. That is not the way that you would want to be described. But Rachel, on the other hand, seems to be the beauty of the family. She caught the eye of Jacob, and he was willing to work for seven years for marrying her. In fact... Chapter 29, verse 20 speaks to the intensity of Jacob's love for Rachel when it says, quote, So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So as we saw last week, it was deeply disappointing to Jacob when he woke up and realized he was next to Leah instead of Rachel. But have you ever realized that Laban allowed Jacob to marry Rachel right after this wedding ended? He said to him, finish this week with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel. You have to work seven years for her. But the marriage feast for Jacob and Leah had hardly finished when they had everyone gather back together for a second wedding. It can all be summed up in verse 30, which says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. All of the events that we've just read are genuinely heartbreaking for Leah. She is truly a tragic figure. You can see the bitterness and the sorrow that is pouring forth from her later when she speaks to her sister in chapter 30, verse 15. She says, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? She feels that she has been robbed by Rachel. Leah feels that Jacob was stolen from her. She desired to be loved by him. She wanted him to give, uh, she wanted Jacob to give his heart to her. But instead, Jacob only delighted in Rachel. Listen to the way that verse 31 describes Jacob's attitude towards Leah. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, hated. Now, Jacob probably didn't openly look at her with disgust. He probably wasn't furious with her every single day. He probably didn't spit in her face every time he walked by. He didn't hate her in the sense that we normally use the word hate. But he didn't love her. 
Leah was, was his wife, but he was not the slightest bit interested in her. John Calvin explains it this way. He says, The Holy Spirit pronounces those as hated who are not sufficiently loved. And we know that men were created for this end, that they should love one another. Therefore, no one will be counted guiltless of the crime of hatred before God. Do you see what he's saying here? If you've never loved somebody as much as you were supposed to love them, then before God it is considered hatred for them. You do not love them as you ought. But even though Jacob took no interest in Leah, God did. Do not overlook the phrase, the Lord saw. He was watching over Leah, and he was caring for Leah, even when Jacob was not. It says that he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. This will do it. Now my husband will love me. Reuben literally means, look, it's a son, or, or literally, see, it's a boy. And it's like she wanted Jacob to be reminded every time he said the name of his firstborn son that it had been provided to, her, to him by Leah. She thought that perhaps this would make Jacob care for her. Maybe this little boy would cause him to prize her. That's definitely not going to be the case. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon just means the Lord has heard me. And once again, she is hoping for her husband to love her because of this child. She is literally using these babies as weapons against her sister in order to gain favor with Jacob. But again, her plan fails. Verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi simply means attached. But baby number three did not cause Jacob to attach himself to Leah. Now before we arrive at baby number four, Allow me to pause and make a very important practical application here. Husbands, or men who are here that may eventually be husbands, do not make your wife fight for your affections. Do not set them aside like Jacob did to Leah as you chase other things. Work, hobbies, the guys, the Mets, all of those things have some value, but you have very specific responsibilities to love your wife. So application, obviously, don't marry two wives. Of course, everybody knows that. In fact, I don't know of anybody who would want to do that. Don't marry two wives, we know. I don't think that anybody in this room is learning something when I say that. It's obvious. I assume everyone here knows that it's not only illegal, but stupid to do such a thing from the examples we receive in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, I'm sorry. But I also want to point out to you something very significant, and that is that polygamy and pornography actually have a lot more similarities than you might think. Leah was obviously not completely physically abandoned by Jacob. She kept getting pregnant, which means they had some kind of an ongoing relationship here. She had access to his body, but not to his heart. And it's clear that what she wanted was his affection. Many of you have seen perhaps the Christian movie Fireproof with Kirk Cameron. 
Uh, it's one of the few Christian movies that I think actually has a pretty good uh, uh, theme to it, pretty good message, although the acting is occasionally very cheesy. But it's well worth watching. It's a story of a man who is an angry firefighter who's got a crumbling marriage. His life is just kind of falling apart. He's a hard worker, but everything else is just devolving around him. He also happens to be addicted to pornography. And uh, throughout the course of the movie, he comes to know the Lord. But one of the most heartbreaking moments in the movie is what happens when his wife, Catherine, is speaking to her hospitalized and aging mother. She says, you don't know what I've been competing with. I mean, when he looks, and then she kind of trails off for a moment, and she says, when, mama, when did I stop being good enough for him? Pornography dulls your affections, and it dulls your affections for Christ. It dulls your affection for things that truly matter, but it also dulls your affections for your wife. It steals your heart away from where it's supposed to be. So men, your your wives have a right to your heart. They're not asking for something that they shouldn't be when they're asking for such a thing. Consider your calling. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 What does it mean to give yourself up for her? It means many things, and we don't have time to even scratch the surface of all of them today. But I know some men who believe that they are fulfilling their responsibility to their wife if they just make enough money to keep a roof over their head and groceries in the refrigerator. But Jesus' relationship with the church is not like that. His relationship with his body is absolutely the opposite of that. His relationship to us was never merely this strictly business kind of relationship. It was not affectionless. He did not come and die for the church only to say, now you go figure things out on your own. Now you go spend time all on your own. Jesus has lavished his affection on us. He told his disciples in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, don't miss that, as the Father has loved me, so, or in the same way, or in like manner, have I loved you. Abide in my love. Remain there. Stay there. It's there for you. Enjoy it. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it. The love within the Godhead is infinite. It cannot grow. The love that the Father has for the Son is ultimate. And there's nothing more loving than that. And Jesus tells his disciples that he loves us in the very same way. And that's why he tells us to abide or remain or stick or stay or hold fast to it. Christianity is not some dry boring, empty religion. Genuine, saving, new covenant faith is vibrant. It is rich. It is marvelous because Jesus loves us. It is marvelous because that affection has been given to us. And Ephesians 5 teaches us that in the very same way, we are supposed to love and lavish that love over our wives. It is the calling of every married man to cherish our wives by reflecting the gospel, namely, self-sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. So men, don't take your wife, don't make her fight for your affections. Don't give her your heart. Don't give away your heart to anything else. I mean, look, there's a lot of things competing for your affections. Everything in the world wants them. Everything is competing for them. But don't make her beg for scraps of your attention. And especially don't give your heart to another woman, whether that person is living in front of you at your job or that person is in your computer screen. Christ has not only called us to love our wives in this way, he's also given us the power to love our wives in this way. 
As we abide in the love of Christ, we are also able to reflexively give love freely to others like we're supposed to. So that was a little rabbit trail there. Let's jump back to the text and we reach baby number four, verse 35. It says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. One of the sad realities of the two chapters we're studying today is that Jacob really never seems to love Leah. It seems that he never actually gets it. It seems that he never turns his heart towards her. For the rest of her life, it seems that Leah suffered the role of being neglected and overlooked by her husband. But after Judah was born, God temporarily closed Leah's womb. Ladies, I took some time here to talk to your husbands, to the men. I'm going to talk to you for a minute. I want you to see what Leah learned here. She was searching for fulfillment from her husband. She rightly desired to be the apple of his eye. That's a good desire. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we know there's nothing wrong with that because the the Lord saw that and it says that he saw that and gave her a son. There's nothing wrong with that desire. She rightly desired this, but no matter what she did, she couldn't gain his affections. But by the time she had her fourth child, something had shifted in her. She was no longer trying to shove a child in Jacob's face and say, love me, look, a son, love me. She was no longer complaining about Jacob's hatred of her and saying, God has heard me and my husband will stop hating me. No, and she is no longer attempting to manipulate her husband's heart and saying, now he will be attracted to me. Instead, she names this child Judah. I'll praise the Lord. It just means praise. Her heart has changed. And it's through this child this one that is given in praise, that eventually the Messiah would come. Now, ladies, especially those of you who are married to unsaved men who have yet to turn to Christ, or really, honestly, ladies who are married to saved men, it's worth noting here that your husbands are not perfect. I know what you're thinking. That's the most obvious thing that you've said all day. But please understand, at some point, your husband is going to disappoint you. He is going to fail you. He will probably sin against you. And I'm not excusing that. I'm not covering up for that. I am not attempting to give them or myself a get-out-of-jail-free card for that. There will probably be times where you feel like Leah feels in this chapter. Emotionally abandoned. But you need to learn what it took Leah so long to figure out. It took her four kids before she finally realized something. Ladies who are single, I also want to speak to you in this very same way. If you are yet to be married or if you've been given the gift of singleness, although your circumstances are a little different than hers, you also need to learn the lesson of Leah. Honestly, this is not just for the ladies. Anyone who has ever had discontentment can learn from this. She was slowly but surely being sanctified. She was finally able to praise the Lord for his kindness, even though she didn't get exactly what she wanted, even though she didn't get exactly what she even deserved. Even if you never experience the love that you crave from somebody, you can still rejoice in the Lord and praise his name. So husbands, love your wives, and wives, love your husbands. But both of us need to remember that we must also find our fulfillment in the only one that really satisfies us. That's Jesus himself. 
Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 14, 13, Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Be satisfied. Jesus has given us himself to be satisfied in him. And if your search for satisfaction in this life is grounded in anything other than Jesus, then you're going to be ultimately very disappointed. It's not wrong to want good things. It's not wrong for Leah to want her husband's affections. It's not wrong for you to want the love of your spouse. It's not wrong to desire kindness from others. But when those things are withheld from you, or when they are taken away from you, that's when you are going to discover whether or not Christ is enough for you. I love how Augustus Lopez speaks to this very thing. He says, quote, Christ satisfies our deepest thirst for wholeness. He satisfies our longing to know God, our deepest yearnings to be full. By daily communion with Christ through the means of grace, we find full satisfaction for all of our needs. This satisfaction enables the Christian to serve God here in this world with a heart full of fervor and dedication. A happy heart in Christ empowers the believer to overcome sin and dedicate himself entirely to the service of his Lord and Redeemer. End quote. One of the marks of a true believer is that God will sanctify us and will cause us to find our joy in him. If necessary, he's going to strip away all of the counterfeit ways that we are seeking to find that fulfillment. Now, although Leah was by no means perfect at this point or beyond this point, God had done much to bring her to this place of finding joy in him and praising him. So now let's take the rest of our morning to consider the sanctification in Rachel's life. Many scholars believe that Rachel probably was not only beautiful, but also flaunted her beauty in front of others. It's probably easy for it to go to somebody's head when there's a man who's willing to work 14 years just to marry you. She's probably letting these things not only go to her head, but letting that be displayed before others. She does seem to display a heart of superiority over her sister in these passages. But it is difficult to know exactly how much she displayed her beauty with the intention of provoking Leah, and how much of it was just natural envy on the part of her older sister. We don't know. So I can't speak entirely to the amount of sinfulness in the way that she lived her life before others. But there is one thing written here clearly for us to see. We don't have to read between the lines to know that Rachel is now jealous of her sister. Where Leah had been so jealous of Rachel, now Rachel is truly jealous of her sister. Genesis 30 verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. I see her as being a little bit dramatic. It's immediately evident that Rachel had made children her God. She doesn't think life is worth living anymore without them. Earlier this summer, Ashley and I planted some potatoes with the kids in our backyard. They're super easy. You literally just put them under some dirt and they multiply. It's incredible how God created them to work. And apparently Levittown used to be a gigantic potato farm back before they started building houses on it in the 40s. So now these potato plants, they're, they're probably about this tall, and I'm looking forward to a nice harvest, but I have n- no idea when you're supposed to dig these things up. So recently I was looking into how do you know when it's time to harvest these things, and how do you know how to like find them under the ground? And every site that I read said the exact same thing. When all of the green plants start to die away, that's when it's time to dig, and that's 
how you know where to find them. It's right underneath of where all those stems are. You just start following the roots. I know where to find them because there are telltale signs that indicate for me what to expect under the surface. Brothers and sisters, discontentment is one of the easiest ways to discover idols under the surface of your heart. It's really hard for us sometimes to know what those idols are and where they are, but there are things that will begin to shoot up, just like those potato plants, that will reveal to you where to find them. It's like this tall plant of pride that is growing up, saying, I deserve more than you have given me, God. That's what discontentment is. Discontentment with your home or your relationships or the number of children you've been given or with the amount of money in your bank account. You fill in the blank. I would just be happy if what? If what? Begin digging down to see what's at the root of that discontentment. And I bet you'll find a false god that you are worshiping in your heart. Rachel thought she would be happy if she could only have a baby. But God's going to withhold that from her for a very long time. Why? Why would God withhold a good thing like a child from her? Why would he not give her the baby that she wants? And to ask that same question more broadly, why won't he give us whatever we want when, whenever we want it? He can. He owns everything. Why can't he just give us what we ask for immediately the first time we go to him? The answer is very simple, because it's bad for us. It is not good for us. Rachel needed to be sanctified. She needed to be brought low. Leah had been humbled, and God raised, raised her up in due time. Jacob is being humbled, but God will eventually raise him up in due time. Likewise, God is humbling Rachel through temporary barrenness. He made this woman, this girl who was once so highly regarded for her beauty, to bear the scorn of society for a time. In those days, if you were a woman who could not have a child, they believed that you were cursed. And she's not living in the Judeo-Christian mold here. This is not Israel. This is not a people who understands Yahweh, the, the God of love. This is in a place where they are surrounded by pagans who worship false gods who would say, if you are not having children, it's because all the gods are against you. And now this woman who was once highly regarded because of her appearance, is scorned. This is one of the reasons why the health wealth gospel is so deadly. It is evil to the core. It teaches people to think that their desires are more important than God's plans or his purposes. This system of belief teaches people to demand their entire wish list from God right now. And if the notion that God doesn't, if God doesn't give it to me right now, then there's something wrong with God, not with me. It's the notion that God is just a conduit to give me what I want. He's just a conduit to my desires. Ultimately, the God of the health wealth gospel is the person himself. I want what I want, and I want it now. I want health. I want wealth. I want happiness. And if God doesn't give it to me, then he's not good. We should not be surprised that this teaching exists. It's the natural philosophy of all sinful mankind. But we must be transformed as believers away from the thinking that we deserve whatever we want whenever we want it. And we must learn to trust that God is good and that he knows what he's doing at all times. This transformation would not happen quickly for Rachel. It took a long time. In fact, it seems that it took the better part of 13 years before she understood. First, she went to Jacob to demand that he do something to give her a child. Now we see this response in verse 2. He's, it says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said to her, Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? 
Now, I imagine that this really stung Rachel deeply. She was already hurting, and now her husband, this is a pretty harsh rebuke that she received from him. And regardless of his intent, these words were probably branded on her mind for the rest of her life. But just like Sarah had done two generations before, Rachel determined to circumvent God's timing by having a surrogate child through her servant Bilhah. This is where the competition of bearing children gets really out of hand. Bilhah has two children, almost back-to-back, Dan and Naphtali. They were born to Bilhah, but Rachel seems to claim them as her own children. Those aren't your kids. Those are my kids. They are my children. They will give me honor. And she names Naphtali because the word literally means my wrestling. This is my wrestling. And she says in verse 8, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. Let there be no mistake. Rachel viewed this as an all-out war. She was going to do whatever it took to regain the upper hand. She was never going to relinquish the position that she had been as the favorite. Then, because Leah saw that she was no longer having children, she too had to do something to fight back. So she gave her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob, who also had two children, Gad and Asher. And this whole time, Jacob is just going along with this like it's no big deal. God's design for marriage does not look like this. God's design for marriage has always been the exact same. It's one man and one woman covenanting together till death separates them. But if you think that things are messy at this point, just wait. We now reach one of the most, in my opinion, most bizarre events that took place in the entire book of Genesis. Follow along, starting in verse 14. says, In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Now, mandrake, we don't, I don't know if we have these in America, uh, but as I was looking into them, and they're very interesting. They're probably very beautiful. It says that these plants very briefly grow up during the late summer and the fall. They have like a big blue bloom on them, so you can kind of see them from a distance. And eventually that bloom will die away and they will turn into a yellow fruit that is very small that you can eat and you could collect those. But those aren't the valuable parts of the plant. The valuable part is the root underneath of them, which is bright red, which they would crush up and they would make it into a paste that they believed in this region had the ability to make someone fertile to have children, which made them a valuable commodity in this baby battle that's going on. But these things are very, very rare in Padam Aram. They were rare then, they're rare now, so to find something like this was incredibly valuable. Leah's son Reuben is the one who found them. He's the one that brought them home. And Leah has become now temporarily barren, as we saw earlier in the text. And she is no doubt planning to use them in order to become fertile once again. But Rachel received word that these mandrakes had been found. Somebody must have told her. And she came rushing over. And here we see literally the only time that Rachel and Leah ever have a conversation that's recorded for us. I imagine they probably didn't enjoy each each other's company very much and stayed far away from one another. But here in verse 14b, it says, Then Rachel said to Leah, Please, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? You can almost feel the animosity and the bitterness seething through Leah's teeth as she says these words. In her mind, Rachel is the cause of all of her problems. Continuing now in the text, Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. 
So when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Now this is very strange. This is very bizarre. Jacob is literally being sold by his wife. He has been relegated to the position of a pawn while Rachel is attempting to be the queen. R.C. Sproul comments on it this way, Rachel, in a sense, prostitutes Jacob by offering him to Leah for the desired fruit and is plainly more concerned to bear children of her own than she is for her sister's welfare. Both women are willing to barter for relational and sexual intimacy, things that should never be so grossly traded. End quote. Rachel was relying on her own cunning. She was relying on her intelligence, intelligence and efforts to gain something that she wanted. She was not calling out to the Lord. Instead, she was placing her trust in a handful of fruits and roots. And those mandrakes did not have the desired effect for Rachel. They did not make her fertile. They did not give her a child. She was still incapable of having a baby. Her own efforts were not capable of gaining her anything. Why not? Because God alone can open the womb. Leah, on the other hand, she was praying for children. How do I know that? Because verse 17, it says, And God listened to Leah. Implied in that is that she was communicating to him. He listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then she would have a sixth son, and later she would even have a daughter named Dinah. Now, I want you to see something very interesting here. It seems that God is intentionally making a parallel in the circumstances. Once again, there is a very ironic twist that we are supposed to find in these events. For a man in this time, land and animals and material wealth was passed down to you as your inheritance, as your birthright. But for women, your children were your inheritance. To a Jewish person's ears, those words that uh, Jacob just almost reached this morning, he read uh, Psalm 127, 1 and 2, verse 3 says this, children are a heritage from the Lord. That would not be surprising. Children are a heritage, an inheritance? Of course they are. That's what an inheritance was for a woman in those days, a child. Jacob bought Esau's birthright or his inheritance for a bowl of red soup. He was thinking that he would then be able to receive the blessing. Rachel was attempting to buy the ability for her inheritance from her sister with a, this red root paste that she's made. The point that the Bible is making is this. Jacob was not blessed because he was somehow able to successfully manipulate God into blessing him. He wasn't blessed. He wasn't given the covenant because his plan worked. No, that's not how it operated. God cannot be manipulated or cajoled or controlled or steered or even influenced by our efforts. You cannot gerrymander God. His purposes will stand. The main theme that we are seeing run through the entire book of Genesis is that God is sovereign. He loves Jacob because he set his love on Jacob. He loves Jacob in spite of Jacob. We are also seeing that God loves Rachel. He loves her enough that he's not going to let her get her way. He is still bringing her low. And we're not told when, but at some point, Rachel also began to call out on the name of the Lord for children. How do we know that? We read these words in verses 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. 
By the way, just a quick side note here. This phrase, God has taken away my reproach, that's the name of my oldest son, Asaph. And it's very similar sounding to the name Joseph, which means to add. So Asaph means to take away reproach. To Joseph just means add or add another, which is what she's hoping for, another son. God remembered Rachel. This does not mean that God somehow at some point forgot her, that he misplaced her, that he had simply been focused too much on other things and finally came back to realize, oh, wait a minute, I've unfairly treated this woman. No, that's not what's taking place at all. This is the same phrase we see multiple times in the Old Testament, probably most notably when Noah was on the ark with his seven family members and all those animals. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah, and God remembered Rachel. He always remembers his people and his promises. This kind of remembering means that God is now taking action to fulfill his covenant kindness to the individual or to the group. God had brought Rachel down to her knees, and it seems like it took the better part of 13 years to get there, but she finally broke. The question is, will you humble yourself today? Will you humble yourself today? Peter is talking to believers when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you're experiencing a trial, please know that God is working through that to make you more like Christ. For, all, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want to close us out by pondering this reality. At one point, we were all like Leah. And at one point, we were all like Rachel. We were like Leah in that we were alone. We were without love. The love of God was far from us because we were running in rebellion, a hellbound race away from Him. And at one point, we were like Rachel. We were without hope. We were without an inheritance. We were without a future. But God saw Leah and God remembered Rachel. And the wonderful news is that this is true for every Christian here. Every believer in this room can hold fast to these covenant promises that he loves us and that he will sanctify us and that in the midst of all of that sanctification, he sees us and he remembers us and he will never let go of us. He promises to save his people and he has promised us with something so precious. He is committed to it by the blood of his own son. Christ died so that we might be in the love of God. And Christ died so that we might have a hope and a future and an inheritance. So brothers and sisters, we have every reason to delight and have joy in Christ. I want to just say to anyone here who might not know Jesus as their Savior today, I want to speak to you for just a moment and say you're still in those places. Even though you might feel the love of a lot of people, the most important person that could ever love you is God. And that love is available for you if you will believe in Him. And that hope, that inheritance, that future is available if you will place your trust in Him. Come to the foot of the cross and see what Jesus has done. He died to wipe away all of our sins. He died so that we might trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. So that we might be redeemed and renewed and adopted as His children. So if you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ, I just want to say to you, please don't go without talking to me. I would love to share more with you about what it means to be a child of God today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a delight to come before your word and to learn more about your character and your nature, to learn more about what it means to be a child of God, to learn more about what it looks like to live under the new covenant, that you have promised us many things. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the great 
the great gift of the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that today we would not think of that lightly. Lord, for all those practical things we talked about earlier concerning husbands and wives and relationships with one another, I pray that you would give our church strong relationships, that you would cause husbands and wives to love each other well, that we would be reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ well in the way that we care for one another. Please, Lord, allow us to work heartily in this church as well, that we would serve you well even through trials. And God, for all of the things that we have discussed this morning, I pray that you would please work through them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In just a second, Jake's going to come. He's going to give us some announcements. But there's one that I want to highlight, and that's that next Sunday uh, we are going to be having a members meeting for Redeeming Grace Fellowship. It is